This is a Rook Media Series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 17. Hi there, and welcome to the Contemporary History of Iran, a series from Rook Media. This is part 17, The Triumph of the Green Wave. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Our aim with this series is to explore the events, personalities, and issues that have shaped modern Iran. We want to do this as much as possible through a non-traditional lens, through snapshots of change, and using alternative voices or angles. This series is mostly in English and will feature a new episode posted every Thursday across our Rook Media platforms. We will post subtitled excerpts with Farsi Zirnavis on our YouTube and Instagram sites. We are coming to you on rookmedia.com. It is there that you can link to all of our platforms, and we invite you to check out parts 1 through 16 of this series that are already posted. To become a sponsor or patron of Rook Media, please contact us through our website. The Contemporary History of Iran is brought to you in part by Yazdani Law Group. YLG is one of the largest Iranian-Canadian immigration law firms. Their mission, rooted in the leadership of founder Afshin Yazdani, is built on continuously striving to innovate and introduce new immigration pathways for their clients. Afshin began his career as a lawyer and law professor in Iran, and his company has now made it their goal to provide the best, simplest, least risky, and most inexpensive way to immigrate to Canada. YLG has an impressive track record, hundreds of applications from Iran successfully processed every year. They are at YLGPC on Instagram. That is Yazdani Law Group. All right, let's get started. Here now is the Contemporary History of Iran, Part 17. Well, for most Iranians around the world, if you mention the Green Movement, they will hardly need a history lesson. If you're Iranian and were alive and cognizant in 2009, you know that in June of that year, there was a massive mobilization of people of all stripes in Iran, first energized by the possibility of election victory for reformist candidate Mir Hussein Mousavi to become the new president, and then outraged at what was widely accepted as a rigged result that returned Mahmoud Ahmadinejad to power. Millions of Iranians defied the security forces and the admonitions of top officials and flooded into the streets of Tehran, Isfahan, Shiraz, and other cities, rejecting election results and calling out the vote for the obvious fraud that it was. This was echoed by demonstrations by Iranians around the world, in the diaspora, inspired and reacting to footage that was coming out of Iran in what has been called the world's first social media revolution. 
It was an unprecedented display of people power not seen since 1979 in Iran. But of course, the Islamic Republic rulers were not dethroned. Indeed, the fraudulent election results were not overturned, and the regime response was fierce, beating back protesters, killing dozens, staging show trials, rounding up leaders, doling out prison sentences, and placing Mousavi himself under house arrest all the way to the present day. So, how do we view this pivotal event in contemporary Iranian history just a decade and a half later? And was the Green Uprising of 2009 actually a failure or a triumph? What is the legacy of this massive movement, and in what ways might it actually still have resonance in the efforts to create change in Iran today? Our featured guest for this episode is an academic who's just published a book that, in fact, challenges the orthodox narrative that the Green Wave was a failure and a last gasp of reform in Iran. Dr. Puya Ali Maqam is an Iranian-American historian, scholar, and author who specializes in the history of the modern Middle East with an interest in revolutionary and guerrilla movements, imperialism, representation, and Orientalism. Dr. Ali Maqam was born and raised in Iran, obtained his M.A. from Harvard and his doctorate from the University of Michigan. His dissertation won the Association for Iranian Studies Mehrdad Mashayakhi Award and was published as a book in 2020. Dr. Ali Maqam is a professor at MIT's School of Humanities, Arts, and Social Sciences, and the university awarded him the Levitan Teaching Award a couple of years ago. The book is called Contesting the Iranian Revolution, the Green Uprisings, and right now, Dr. Pouya Ali Maqam joins me from Cambridge, Massachusetts today. Hello, sir. Hi, Jian. It's a pleasure to be with you. I have one quick correction. I was born in Iran, and I was raised in Southern California. Ah, okay. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's relevant. You're, a, you're mostly a kid of the diaspora. I appreciate that. That's right. Uh, it, it really is a great pleasure to have you on this program. You've written a most interesting book on this subject. Thank you for doing this. It's, it, was, it, was, it was my pleasure, and it was um, a passion project that uh, really was not part of my... Um, academic plan. I started uh, the PhD program at the University of Michigan in the fall of 2009. I had a very different project in mind. And then in the summer was when the uprising began. And the uprising um, was captivating. And it, it just changed everything for me in terms of my academic future. Well, well, let me first say, I've wanted to do this episode with you for a couple of reasons. I mean, it is, of course, clear that the Green Movement or the events of 2009 are not so far off in our contemporary history. And it's likely that most of the folks listening to this podcast are going to know more about it or have witnessed it in a way that we don't get when we're talking about the 1906 Constitutional Revolution or the mm -hmm. rise of Reza Shah, which can be clearly filed under history. But mm -hmm. despite the the fact that it was only 13 years ago, there are popular and academic narratives that form about an event such as this. And I, I thought it was instructive and interesting to bring you on because one, you've just written a book about the Green Uprising, but concomitant to that, two, your book challenges some of the narratives that have emerged. And the main one being that the 2009 Green Uprising was an abject failure. So I want to mm -hmm. get into all that, but just to break the mm -hmm. ice, do you feel like a heretic because you dare to to say it was not a failure? Uh, I don't feel like I'm a heretic when I say it was not a failure because um, 
I feel like the evidence that's that's out there and the evidence that Iranians in Iran have put forth, if if anyone's just willing to do the work and and either hear them out or or at least read the book, you'll you'll know that it's it's very much not a failure, right? People think of history as start it starts at this point, ends at this point, it fails or succeeds, and history is much more complicated than that. The only heresy that I feel or, or one that I'm accused of is when I uh, when I talk about the green movement as a multifaceted event that um, you know for some people this was a, a staged event from from the United States which it wasn't or others will say that this was uh, a movement that was an internal issue between two sides of the same Islamist coin and and I, I also would say it isn't. Mm. So th- that's really where the heresy comes in, where I'm accused of being a heretic because I challenge those narratives. And it's not really me that's challenging those narratives. It's it's the Iranians themselves. So th- their actions, their deeds, and their words um, as participants in this history is is really what the story is about. Right. I'm just I'm, I'm like the compiler of all the data. Uh, that's really my uh, the, role. The aggregator. Get, let, yeah. let, let's get. I want. I'm. I'm going to get into all of that. For, first of all, give us a little background. Like I say, many folks will remember this, but remind us what the chain of events and the political climate was in Iran that would lead to millions taking the streets by the summer of 2009. First, uh, what led to massive enthusiasm in the days leading up to the election? Yeah, so it's one of those questions where it's hard to know where to start. I'll say that first, there was a lot of disillusionment in the political process, uh, mainly because uh, we had eight years of of a reformist presidency in Khatami that ended in stalemate in terms of the actual reforms that it sought to implement, uh, especially curtailing the power of the Guardian Council. There was a lot of disillusionment, a lot of people who boycotted the next elections, which resulted in a 2005, 2005 victory for Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, an ultra-conservative, uh, essentially revolutionary guardsman. And then um, when there was his, his essentially re-election campaign, there was, again, boy- calls for boycotts, a lot of disillusionment. Um, and, and then the Iranian government itself was very worried about um, a lack of a participation. This is This is customary in every country, really. Governments want people to participate in their elections, uh, mainly because if you are participating in a state-sanctioned event like a like an election, you are essentially by default casting a ballot not only for that candidate that you're voting for, but you're essentially legitimizing the system right. by participating right. in its process. So the government really wanted people to vote and participate, and and it was and the government was cognizant of the fact that there was a lot of apathy, disillusionment, and hopelessness. So it tried to create a climate for people to get energized and excited about the elections, and it ultimately backfired because they got too energized and too excited. And one of the things they ended up doing was, first and foremost, they they eased the restrictive political climate so that people could begin to mobilize for the candidate and also talk about politics openly, right? So a lot of the internet restrictions were removed because the government wanted people having these conversations so they could get excited about candidates. And then it staged um, one-on-one presidential, televised presidential debates. We've had televised presidential debates in Iran before, never one-on-one. And when they were one-on-one, they became much more adversarial. So when one of the big showdowns that went down was between Musavi and Ahmadinejad, where accusations of corruption, authoritarianism, uh, embarrassing Iran internationally with 
Holocaust denial or questioning uh, the Holocaust. Uh, these these are debates that when people watched it, they were shocked um, because these were these were conversations that people were having privately, but they were not having them publicly. And all of a sudden, it was being aired on TV, and that's when a lot of people actually realized that. However much the candidates are screened and vetoed by the Guardian Council, all of a sudden there was a candidate, and maybe two, in uh, Mehdi Karobi, that were questioning core narratives within the Islamic right, Republic. Right. And that, that got people kind of excited about the candidacy. But really there was another, um, you know, uh, in, uh, uh, basically underground movement where people sought to utilize the the easing of the political restrictions to really just come out politically so they started using uh musavi and karubi's political campaigns not only to mobilize for their candidates but really to use the political space to come out against the entire system as a whole so right before the elections you start hearing not only slogans from karubi or musavi or ahmed nejad but you start hearing slogans saying you know, mag bar Taliban, cheddar Kabul, cheddar Tehran. Right. So death to the Taliban, whether in Kabul or in Tehran. Or in Tehran. So yeah. here you had here you had campaigners who were not only campaigning but were equating clerical rule in Iran with the ultra conservative clerical rule in the Tal uh, in the Taliban in the in the mid to late nineties in Afghanistan. But I, sh I should note that I mean I I remember this in real time the. The protest movement, the massive scope of it, not only caught the regime by surprise, but it, it pretty much caught the entire world by surprise because it wasn't that there were massive demonstrations or enthusiasm weeks and weeks before the elections. It was really in the final days before the election that almost like seemingly out of nowhere this of course was not out of nowhere this was years of of discontent or frustration or the need to want to express it's all of that but suddenly there are millions of people in the streets right yeah so that that's the thing about what, what makes it really fascinating is that it wasn't your your typical campaign right so you know like i said moments ago it was a political campaign that had morphed into a political movement so you didn't have, you know, like in the United States or elsewhere, you have, you know, canvassing, knocking on doors, trying to like, you know, get people excited about a candidate. In Iran in, in 2009, you had a street movement mm. where people were mobilizing on the streets, essentially at nights having parties on the streets too, trying to celebrate their candidates. Um, and then that's when, when you also saw some of the anti-regime slogans right and there was also warnings right if you if you pay attention to the slogans that the, the that these campaigners turned activists were saying they were saying that you know if 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 fraud doesn't take place musavi will win so they kind of knew that there was a there was a there was a potential for fraud and they also warned the government should fraud take place iran will revolt right. iran will and that's one of those really interesting slogans because right after allegations of fraud um, emerge you then you then started hearing slogans we warned you that iran will what was the slogan in farsi place. that the warning slogan right so remind us i mean just to get the the sort of historical data points out of the way remind us what happens with respect to the election results and how that then um, provokes this movement to form into a protest movement, not just across Iran, but around the world. 
Yeah, so, uh, you know, th there's a lot of evidence that, su that strongly suggests there was election fraud, right? But, you know, people have delved into it. I kind of delve into it in the book, too. But really, and we see this now, it's not really what, what we, what is the reality, but it's the perception of reality that matters, right? So, so what, what the perception of the reality was that millions believed, for good reason, no matter what anyone could tell them, that there was uh, election fraud. And the elections were announced, the results were announced the evening of June 12, 2009, right? So the same day of the elections, the uh, results were announced. A lot of allegations of, of fraud, like Musabi's hometown was alleged to have voted um, in droves for Ahmednejad. Right. Uh, a lot of just a lot of a lot of reason for skepticism, and then the following day was a lot of rioting, right? So while while it was a largely non violent non violent movement before and after the election results, the Saturday after election results were a lot of rioting. I think the emotions of people kind of got the best of them, and then it it really kind of gathers itself composes itself and turns into a mass movement with a lot of silent protests a lot of silent marches right because once the writing took place the government kind of jumped on it to allege a lot of hooliganism and this is governments typically do this right we see this in the united states and elsewhere uh what you you kind of paint your opponents as thugs or a bunch of terrorists or whatever yeah. yeah yeah a bunch of terrorists or you know conspirators that are backed by foreigners abroad um and then the, the movement kind of crystallizes and it tries to dispel that bad PR that the government was focusing on. And then, of course, the government didn't really focus on the protest after that. It didn't it didn't show the footage from the protests, especially the more gathered and, and silent and peaceful ones. Right. Mm. So the protesters themselves became their own journalists. Right. So they they began to document their own protests and th this is what what makes 2009 so fascinating because it's the first protest movement in history where it wasn't televised because you know that revolution won't be televised but right. it was socially broadcast right so if the iranian revolution of 78 79 was the world's first televised right. revolution right this, this is, is the first, first socially broadcast and they don't have uh they don't have smartphones but they have flip phones by 2009 right so they're yeah they're taking videos and 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 that's the stuff that we would see that some of it which which would become um iconic footage you know the the, the death of uh Neda and, and and some of the other stuff that has now become what we think of when we think of the green wave but just a couple of steps back because i want to mm -hmm. i want to ask you something i mean in, in the preface to your book your book is not a personal story it's a historical it's a his, mm -hmm. history book but in the mm -hmm. preface you 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 are a little personal and you talk about the fact that it, you were in california in 2009 and you, you were watching this green uprising happen from afar like many of us did and this is mm -hmm. as you said in the beginning of this chat uh, this is what sort of uh, inspired you to want to delve into this as your phd dissertation and then a eventually write a book uh, over the last 10 years uh you you talk about this being you realizing that this wasn't just a, a campaign but a street movement can you talk about what you remember that affected you so much observing what was happening in iran well i think that uh, i mean any, any protest movement when it emerges it wants to gain adherence it wants to present itself in a certain way where others could buy into it or subscribe to it so i was in california and 
I was watching the when I would say street movement, I mean it literally took place on the streets, right? Um, and th- this is t- typical in authoritarian societies, right? Because when you want to participate in the election in the politics of the country, you typically do it through elections. When the election ballot is closed to you, if there are no elections or if there are staged elections, then the politics change, right? Then you participate in 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 peaceful societies you participate through elections or or through street protests and then if if street protests are rendered um impossible because of state-sanctioned violence then in certain societies people begin to participate in politics through violence right so this is one thing i i go over through my students that you know i i talk about how well it's not necessarily that we see violence in the middle east because you know, people of that culture or that race or ethnicity are predisposed towards violence. It's because every avenue for political participation, for peaceful political participation uh-huh. has been closed uh-huh. to them, right. right? So then they engage in their politics through violence because that's they come to realize that's the only language the state understands. In Iran, we didn't really see that because you know, even when the crackdown happened post-election, post-June 12th, Interestingly enough, the, the the protesters remained nonviolent. This is one of the really fascinating yes, things about yeah, you write about this in your book, yeah. Yeah, they remained nonviolent and their their weapons were not actual weapons, but it was the symbols and discourses of the government and the Iranian Revolution, which they weaponized, they appropriated or co opted from the state itself and weaponized it and then used it against the state through their protests and their slogans and their actions and so in that in that way you know this is what really got me fascinated because i consider myself a historian of the iranian revolution that's really you know that's always been my political or historical fascination and then to see this uprising in 2009 harness so much of the symbolism and history and legacy of the iranian revolution to then attack the government, which is the outcome of the Iranian Revolution, is really what sold me to this history. That made me that really fascinated me to to then want to read more about it, to to learn what these protesters were doing, what, what their slogans were, what their actions were, and then to basically to basically aggregate it into a book. Let Let me dive into this a little bit because I was going to ask you about this later, but now that you you talk about it, let's just just to reiterate that there's a fascinating paradox that you identify or that you point out in your opinion that the that the 2009 uprising uses the symbolism the the methodologies the inspiration of the 1979 revolution in the protest and this is fascinating because the green wave was ostensibly about protesting or wanting to overturn the Islamic Republic that was a product of the 1979 revolution. So mm-hmm. can you give us examples of what you mean when you say the the protesters are effectively trying to retake the revolution from the Islamic Republic in your view? All right. So I got to do this in a manner that does not get too um, theoretical, yeah, right. right? So let, let's say this, for instance, right? So Iran is a Iran is a Muslim-majority country, and not only is it Muslim-majority, it is a Shiite Muslim-majority country, right? The minority sect in Islam is the dominant sect in the country. In the 60s and 70s, across the, the region where Shiites predominate, you start seeing the politicization of Shiism, right? Like uh, the, the martyrdom of the Prophet Muhammad's grandson, Imam Hussein. 
the Ashura, the commemoration of Hussein's martyrdom, the annual commemoration of Hussein's martyrdom, itself became politicized, whereas typically before it was a day of mourning and self-reflection. In the run-up to the Iranian Revolution, it became a day of mobilization. Mm. Right? The idea was that if you want to truly mourn Hussein, you shouldn't just cry or self-flagellate, you should heed his example of resisting oppression and tyranny. And if need be, to give your life struggling against tyranny and oppression. This was the Ashura of 1978. So it was December 10th, 1978, which became the largest um, protest in the history of the Iranian revolution, right? So it was um, essentially a referendum where people voted by with their feet, mm-hmm. by, by participating with their bodies. December 10th, 1978, um, was an Ashura for the ages, okay. right? And the Iranian government then, as an as an Islamic government, did did two things with its legacy. One is that it, it prides itself on the fact that it came to power through uh, mass mobilization, right? So mass mobilization then became something that was incorporated in the post-revolutionary political calendar of the regime. Mm. Right, so if you want to celebrate, Although of course, the mass mobilization is not just for the Khomeinists, but it's you know it's liberal nationalists, it's today, it's workers, it's right. I mean, it's 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 yeah. it's co-opted by the Islamic formalists, right? So everyone participated in Ashura. So even if they're religious or irreligious, whether they were Islamists or or communists, everyone got on board with the revolution, right? And and that's kind of the same thing with the Green Movement in two thousand nine. It, it created this space where. Everyone who had a beef with the Iranian government right, right. could participate, right? So, you know, to, to my earlier point, what the Iranian government did with this legacy of mass mobilization was, first of all, yes, it, it painted it as, you know, Ashura Day protests as being a day where everyone came out for not just the revolution, but for an Islamic republic, right? right. right which, is, which is not necessarily the case. And then it basically claimed the legacy of Hussein. Right to basically say that we we as an Islamic Republic are carrying forth Hussein's banner and resisting the tyranny of the day. Right, first was the Shah, then it was Saddam and its American backers. So then Ashura became this day post the Iranian Revolution, where um, the the Iranian government had had incorporated it into its political calendar. Where if you if you want to properly observe Hussein's legacy. You should not only mourn his death, but you should support the Iranian government that carries forth his flag of resistance against the tyranny of the day. Okay. In 2009, this was all subverted, right? So then protesters on December 27, 2009 came out six months after the election results and said, In Mah Mai Khunast, Said Ali Sarnagunast. In Mah Mai Khunast, Yazid Sarnagunast, essentially saying that you who care, who claim the the mantle of Hussein, in our eyes, you are the equivalent of the murderers of Hussein, the Caliph Yazid, huh. and they then saw themselves. They presented themselves, whether they were religious or not. Actually, they were just using this discourse, this this shared emotive universe that all Iranians, whether they're Muslim or not, whether they're religious or not, still understand. And they came out and they said that on Ashura of all days, that not only is the Iranian government the equivalent of the modern-day Yazid, but we as protesters 
who do not have the power, like Hussein didn't have the power. <laughs> we are the equivalent of the righteous um, who are fighting tyranny. It's quite and, brilliant. And, it, 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 they're, they're, they're effectively trying to pull the rug out from underneath the, the claims, uh, the, the whole um, identity of the Islamic Republic rulers, right? The whole identity. And they did this throughout the uprising. From June 12th all the way to December 27th. The Ashura is just one of so many examples. Ashura is probably the most militant one because the message is militant or had become militarized, but also because by December 2009, uh, after so many, so much crackdown, um, the movement itself had hardened. So initially, when the movement first began, it was a first a campaign that turned into a protest movement that their, their main slogan was, where is my vote? Yes. Then, um, by December, because t- one of two things either happened, the, the repression of the state either pushed the moderate voices to not, the moderate voices to not come out anymore, right? Because now there was a risk to their lives. Sure. So the, the people that continued to come out were the more the more committed ones and their and their voices were more radical or what could have happened was that the repression just hardened those people that continued to come out so the slogans begin to change first it was where's our where's my vote to now this is the month of blood and said ali will be overthrown and they weren't it wasn't peaceful anymore so december 27th was a day where protesters started to fight back so you see a lot of clashes. This is Whereas six before, months after the original. Six months later, yeah. yeah. So, uh, I, I'm 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 listening to you, and I'm thinking. First of all, it's fascinating the appropriation of um, language and ideas from the '79 revolution uh, in 2009. The same time, I'm thinking this is the reason why some people disavow the 2009 movement, right? That for, it's those in the diaspora who would say, ah, it was just a, you know, an attempt at reformism of, of, of trying to fix something that we already think is broken and, and it wasn't really an attempt to get rid of the regime, to get rid of the, the you know, what's happening in Iran. It's, that's also part of the paradox, isn't it? Well, I, I don't know if I'd call it a paradox. I would say that, first of all, movements don't stay static, right? So the messaging just changed because in that six months, essentially, this is this is what happens, right? When when a government cracks down on people, it it delegitimizes itself because that is not what governments should be doing. But that's what all governments do, essentially, right? That the whole purpose is that we're we're a government of the people. We're here to serve, serve Islam, serve Muslims, serve Iranians, uh, and 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 guarantee the security of the state and the country, right? Now. There's, those security forces are cracking heads. We're going to kill batons. you if you disagree with us. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, so to say that you know it, 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 the movement doesn't change and it remains static it is a bit ahistorical. I know that's not what you said, but this is when when the crackdowns continue to happen, it, the movement changed and the government itself changed. And and I think this is the most fascinating thing about this history. It revealed a different kind of paradox, right? So if the Islamic Republic is rooted in the legacy of the Prophet Muhammad, Islam, and the 12 Imams, and Imam Hussein, the third Imam in particular. And Khomeini himself called it Nehzat al-Husseini, the, the Husseini movement. Hussein never achieved power. He fought and died. He fought power and died fighting power. 
You can't claim the mantle of Hussein, where in the borders of Iran, you are the ultimate arbiter of power. Mm. That's where the that's where the paradox really comes in. Because then on Ashura 2009, the protesters took Hussein, literally were carrying Hussein's banner. It said, Ya Hussein. It, they had flags that said, Ya Hussein. And they were essentially underscoring the true paradox in the country. It, when it comes to within Iran's borders, the flag bearers of Hussein's legacy is not the government that has a monopoly on violence and is the ultimate arbiter of power within the country. But the flag bearers are those who are willing to fight against authoritarianism, against oppression in their own country, and are essentially armless, without arms, and are facing down this powerful entity. And if there are, I don't know, uh, liberal nationalists or people who want to turn Iran into a parliamentary democracy or to bring back the monarchy or whatever, if they are part of that protest in 2009, that's just because everyone unifies at a time like this against and, and you know in terms of the the collective frustrations of, of wanting to get rid of this regime so I, I i can't say that everyone unified i can say that everyone's everyone who protested on that day was using this discourse so if you remember there was a trial in 1972 of a marxist leninist named Khosrow and his um cohort yes. Donishian and and several others i think there was 11 total there were marxist leninists like in, in his military trial and that, that should tell you about the political climate of the country where he was a journalist and he was receiving a military trial in his military trial he says that and he's a marxist leninist mind you so he doesn't believe in god or the or the prophet muhammad or the prophet's 12 direct descendants the imams he doesn't believe in any of that but he sees he ends up in his military trial saying i'm a marxist leninist and i first learned about justice and struggle through imam ali so you know somebody and this was a televised military trial so any Iranian who was listening to this trial may not understand the complexities of Marxist-Leninism, but understood what Golosorki was saying because of this idea of justice and struggle and Imam Hussein and Ali and, Hussein and the Prophet Muhammad, all these things. My point being is that this is a shared discourse. So in 2009, Austria 2009, not everyone who came out was religious. Not everyone who came out was a Muslim. But they came out using this discourse, this discourse that they appropriated and weaponized against the same system that derived this legitimacy from it. And that's the ingenuity and, and the lasting legacy of the Green Movement, in my opinion. You know, it, it certainly failed to abrogate the election results. Ahmadinejad was re-inaugurated. The Islamic Republic that ratified his election results remained in power. But the lasting legacy of the Green Movement wasn't that it, it failed to overthrow the government or to abrogate the election results. But it, like you said, it pulled the rug out from underneath the Iranian government. It has since lacked a certain legitimacy. Let me come to that. Let sure. me just two steps back. I want to still, I mean, basically what we've been talking about the last few minutes uh, uh, underscores the point that you, you make in the book and that, uh, you know, any observer who would scratch beneath the surface would know about the green wave about 2009, which is that in the end, it's really not just about Musavi and an election. Uh, and, and the cover of your book is interesting because uh, it's not just Musavi. It's 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 a woman in a green scarf holding a peace sign, um, 
tell me about the decision to, for that to be the image you wanted to use. Yeah, I, pre- I appreciate that question, right? It's a great question. I love it. Um, so it's this woman who's wearing a full like covering, chador, everything, right? And she has a green band on her wrist. And I think she's wearing like a green scarf around her too. She has a peace sign with one hand. That could be a victory sign, by the way. It could mean both, peace or victory. Uh. And in the other hand, she has a Musavi campaign poster. But the interesting thing is, she's not just holding it like a normal person would. She's holding it in a way that covers her face. And that's really the message I was trying to convey. First of all, that women were so involved in this protest movement, and in some ways were these leaders. And that's why I put a woman on the cover. It's not Musavi on the cover. Musavi is not... I mean, he's a poster in the cover, but really the core issue is that is this woman and that she's covering her face. And that that underscores the fact that before or after the elections, there was a security issue nonetheless, and people want to conceal their identities. Hmm. And that kind of goes to the core of, of this protest movement, right? That they were risking life and limb by participating, by participating in the campaigns before, because those campaigns were not only about candidates, but about political statements like that's at the Taliban, whether in Kabul or in, or in Tehran, and, or, or whether they were participating afterwards, which was a very openly anti-government protests. Yes, yes. So the issue is, the, the protest cover is, is not about Musavi. It's about that woman who's concealing her face, and it's very obvious that she's part of this movement. And this, I mean, it may seem like a superficial point, but it's not. You've talked about this too. The fact that the use of a color, the movement had a color. We call it the green movement, the green uprising, the green wave. This mm-hmm. color was not just important in sort of identifying in retrospect this movement, but actually scared the regime, scared the Iranian security forces, the IRGC. Why? Yeah, so this is a, <laughs> it's a great question, right? So the fact that the protest movement adopted, or the campaign, because before it became a protest movement, it was a campaign. So the fact that the campaign adopted a color um, alerted the government that this is not just a regular campaign, that this is a political movement, and that maybe a color revolution, like the Orange Revolution or these other revolutions that happened in Eastern Europe or Ukraine or Georgia, maybe this is something much more than just a political movement. So even before the election results were announced, the IRGC commanders were issuing threats that, you know, Musavi is using his campaign to launch a color or velvet revolution, and we will nip any such revolution in the the bud. They actually came out and said that. But really, the fact that they adopted this color wasn't because it was some sort of conspiracy from abroad, but because Musavi was an insider, I mean, he had been pushed to the margins of the political elites, but he was a Sayyid. He was a, a, a distant uh, descendant of the Prophet Muhammad, and green is the color of Islam and the Prophet Muhammad. And he was part of the system. He was the, uh, part of its center in the 80s as the prime minister, what they called Khomeini's, uh, uh, the Imam's prime ministers, what they often call him. Uh, so he, he used the color of Islam to kind of underscore or highlight his credentials the fact that he was a sayyid like like the the supreme leader is a sayyid himself like khomeini was himself and the fact that um this is not a movement against islam but this is a movement um you know that is that is very much 
still in 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 belief in Islam as well, right? At least that's how initially it was taken, or uh, that's how initially it was put forth by the campaign. It was not a campaign decision to adopt the color. It became something that a lot of the campaigners adopted, and they just kind of ran with it. But it becomes a brilliant identifier internationally. You know, anybody wearing the green, it's like I'm in support of those those folks fighting for for anything from freedom to democracy to to election results being fixed in Iran. Do you remember? Uh, I think I remember this correctly. There was a World Cup qualifying game yes. uh, where some of the Iranian football players end up wearing green. Uh, and I guess they get sanctioned or something after that. Or get they the, did. Yeah, but but that even that act of wearing like a green wristband or something like that was such an identifier. It was quite brilliant. Yeah, so in, in, in protest activity, right, if you have something that identifies you with that protest, um, it becomes contagious in a way, right? So then you, you kind of get to see who is with you and who isn't. And when you see so many people with you, that inspires you to, to then jump on board with it fully. And then once you jump on board with it, others may follow suit. It has this domino effect. And that's what we saw. We saw, you know, June 13th, the day after turning into riots, but then June 14th to turn into mass protests. And then June 15th, Monday, was the largest political gathering in Iran since the Iranian Revolution, right? So we see literally 3 million people come out just in Tehran, right? The interesting thing is, this, this is why uh-huh. it, the uprising is so so interesting because of it, the fact that it's a very modern um, uprising in terms of its technology and its repertoires of action. The Iranian government, the, the, the mayor of Tehran, Khalibov, came out and acknowledged that 3 million people came out in Tehran. And then the state newspaper that acknowledged or quoted him quickly removed that news article so that because the government did not want to acknowledge three million people came out in one city against it right and then even to this day people argue oh this is there was no three million people like i've had i've had a backlash online when i said three million people came out and i can't i can't quote that article because the article doesn't exist anymore it was brought down like days later but what's the backlash being people saying it wasn't three million people yeah like the supporters of the iranian government would then come out and say three million people you're dreaming Three million people came out in Tehran. But this is why it's so fascinating because those same activists with those same flip phones were were documenting these protests. So yes, one of them yes. goes on a pedestrian uh, overpass, like a you know pedestrian bridge. If you've been in, 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 in places like Tehran, um, to help with the congestion of traffic, if you want to cross the street, you just basically walk above uh, above the traffic on a bridge and just cross the bridge across the street that way to kind of continue, help with the tr- flow of traffic so somebody went on um, on one of these pedestrian overpasses with a smartphone and films this mass gathering of literally millions of people and then he turns around because he's on a bridge so you can see the other side and you see another uh, like the other side of that whole sea of people and there's no doubt that millions came there's no doubt. You just have to see the footage. You have to be willing yeah, yeah. to want to see that truth. So people are just like content with the fact that they could just say, there's no way 3 million people came out. But they documented everything. This is this is why it's important to actually go to the sources, and the sources are the people who participated. They documented everything about this uprising. The slogan for those in those 
big days with the big protests and, and we had them in the diaspora and we had certainly had them here in Toronto and I was speaking at them. They were, the slogan was, where is my vote? As you mentioned mm -hmm. earlier, mm -hmm. what happened to that? What happened to the, where is my vote part of this? Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, if you recall, the more the movement dragged on, the more it was repressed, the more it changed. So it, the, the, the people who participated got hardened by the violence they received by the government and the slogans just transformed, right? This is, this is why, this is, again, this is the legacy of the protest movement, right? So early it was taboo to say death to Khamenei, death to the Velayat Afari, you know, down with the Islamic Republic. People talked about it, but they wouldn't air it openly, right? It was taboo. Khamenei himself was seen as above politics, so people really didn't try 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 to avoid politically openly targeting him because they knew it was going to create just a political backlash on their bodies. And but what ends up happening is a week a week literally a week after the elections, Khamenei gives a rare Friday sermon. He doesn't give the Friday sermons every week. He gives them only when there's a big issue at hand, a big national issue or international issue. So the Friday after the um, election results, he came, he gave like a you know one hour talk about Islamic jurisprudence, and then the last 15 minutes was devoted to the politics at hand. This is when it, this is why everyone tuned in. This is why yes, we tuned in yes, to California. I remember, yeah. <laughs> and and it was actually really loaded and the way he phrased it was super emotional and was designed to kind of like tug at the heartstrings of his supporters. He basically says that, you know, my body is handicapped, right? I think one of his arms is disabled. He's like, my body is handicapped. All I have is my good name and my honor. And it, it is being dragged in through the mud. And uh, now the uh, the country's security is at stake. The, the imperialists, the Israelis, the Zionists, everyone's at the door. And we have to put down this um, uprising to secure the country. Should it continue then whatever blood is spilt will be on the hands of the leadership of the opposition. Talking about Musavi, Karubi, and Rahnabad. But by him saying that now, he's now part of the problem. He, he threw his weight into the process. So now the slogans changed from not just Ahmed but his backer in the system, Khamenei. And that's one of the legacies of the movement, right? Because before, they wouldn't talk about Khamenei or the system of the rule of the jurisprudence, the Velayat Afari, what makes Islam's, uh, Iran's Islamic Republic novel is, is it has a clerical head of state, right? An unelected clerical head of state. Now the Green Movement went from where's my vote to death to the Velayat Afari, death to Khamenei. This, this took six months, but it became the legacy of the movement. So now when protests happen, Okay. Whether it's about, uh, go ahead. I'm yeah, sorry. well, I, I mean, here's the part I want to get to because uh, that may become what the slogans become. But that that now it's 13 years later, and you can forgive people, uh, I'm sure, who uh, wouldn't buy your argument that this this was anything other than a failure. Uh, I mean, mm -hmm. much of the discourse around the aftermath of the 2009 Green Movement protests is that it really was a last gasp of breath for attempted reform in Iran, and, and that it was an uprising that that uh, that heartbreakingly failed, 
and convince many to give up on expecting any change in Iran. So this <laughs> is where you take this different approach and suggest that it was not only not a complete failure, but that it has been significant. I mean, you've actually called it a triumph in some ways in pollinating, I'm using your language, pollinating future protest movements vis-a-vis Iran. Why should we not see it as a failed attempt at change? Why should we see it as something of a triumph? Okay, great question. Love it. <laughs> uh, first of all, I, I, would, I wouldn't even say it's over, right? So, yes, no one cares about Ahmadinejad's second term in office. It's done. It's over. Um, they've had, you know, two presidents since. Uh, no one cares about what happened in 2009 in, in the sense that they want to overturn the election results. But the legacy is still alive and well, right? So if you think about it in terms of Iranian history itself, right? So Khomeini led an uprising in 1963 and 1964. It was crushed, um, and he was exiled. So people could say that was a failure. It was a failure. The protests in 1963-64 didn't result in any political victories, and its leader was sent first to Turkey, then to Iraq in exile. Yes. But that wasn't that wasn't the end of the story, because 14 years later, he, he, he returned to Iran triumphant at the helm of a, a revolution for which he was its leader. So the green, I'm not saying the green uprising is going to result in a revolution where uh, Musavi is going to return and, and and be at the helm of this new leadership. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that moments in history, they're not you know episodes where it begins and ends and it's over. They cross pollinate. So everything that's happened in Iran since has nothing to do with Ahmadinejad or Musavi or Karabi, but it has a lot to do with the history of 2009 and 2010. So how? How? Tell us how. For instance, everything that every major political event that's happened since 2009, 2010, you still hear people come out and air green movement slogans. Mm. So when the the nuclear agreement was first negotiated and and um, Javad Zarif returned to Iran before it was even signed, when he returned to Iran knowing that the deal was going to be signed, people gathered in Tehran and celebrated, and then you hear slogans from the green movement when rohani was elected for the first time in 2013 you hear slogans from the green movement like for instance they said it is grand it is grand neda's absence is at hand right neda being the quintessential martyr of the green movement neda um rohani's re-election rahsanjani's death all of these, you hear green movement slogans, but that is not its biggest legacy. Its biggest legacy, in my opinion, is that now whatever political crisis occurs in the country, it picks the, the politics of the day or the protesters of that day or that event. They pick up where the green movement left off. So if the green movement began with where's my vote and it was put down in December, January, February with, when it was saying death to Khamenei, now whatever protests happen, pick up right where the green movement left off. So let's say, for instance, um, the protests in, in November 2019. They began yeah. because Alban. the government... Re- yeah, Alban Ma. The protests began because the government removed the subsidy on gas, on gasoline. The protesters didn't say, where is my subsidy? They were saying, death to Khamenei. Death to the Islamic Republic. They were picking up where the Green Movement left off because by the time the Green Movement was put down, the government had put down the movement, but it sacrificed its legitimacy in doing so. Yeah, but I could, I, 
I mean, I, I like what you're saying and I really appreciate the, the thesis. At the same time, I feel like, you know, I, 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 can I tell you how many times on this program over the last two years, people have come on and said, the, the, 2009 was my last gasp of hope. I gave up. The, 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 the nihilism, the, the hopelessness among Iranian youth that, that comes out of the failure of, of uh, you know, the, the dreams of the, the Green Movement. I mean, that speaks to, you know, certainly uh, uh, having participated in some of the, the, the activities around 2009, I can tell you that nobody was seeing it as a triumph at the time that, that the election results were not being overturned. And then, of course, what do you say to those who um, who would say 2009 is actually the prime example of how trying to reform Iran will simply not work? So the, the reforming Iran obviously is is you know, a, an impossible or near impossible undertaking, right? Because whatever change you want to implement within the system through elected bodies, like the parliament or the presidency, will be vetoed by the unelected bodies, as they have been, Um you know, by way of the Guardian Council veto. So the, the, the argument that changing the system from within is a very basic and, and easy to understand argument. And I do not fault the argument. But what I'm saying is that reform, put reform aside, right? To say that the Green Movement is a reform movement is basically to, to take a multifaceted movement and to homogenize it uh, with one word, right. right? The Green Movement was, it's, sure, the figurehead was reformist, Rahnavard, Musavi and Karubi, for sure they were reformists, but everyone that gathered underneath it and all the slogans they aired were not about reform. They were about a lot of things. Those issues still persist. They, they, they continue to this very day. And, and Iran has changed drastically. The politics, the country, everything has changed since 2009. A lot of it because of 2009, a lot of it just because Iran is just constantly changing as a dynamic country like so many other countries. It's changing and evolving. To say that it, it, it was a failure because it, it, it was it failed at achieving reform. Is really to kind of homogenize a heterogeneous mm. movement. Got it. I, I'm, I'm very energized by this chat. I'm so grateful for having you on the program. And I love this notion that, or this this idea that you need to remind us of, uh, as as historians do. That that uh, as you started in the beginning of this conversation, saying, "Where is the starting point? Where is the ending point?" History doesn't just sort of like exist in these like neat packages. And even yeah. even on a recent episode talking about the constitutional revolution of 1906, our expert uh, Dr. Ansari was saying, "Look, we still see resonance even today of 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 the legacy Absolutely. of the of 1906, right? So how could we expect the Green Movement to not have an effect only 13 years later?" Do yeah. you think the way we say a final question to you, do you think the way we see the green movement will continue to evolve and shape shift? And what do you suspect? I know it's difficult to do for a, 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 an historian, but what do you suspect we will see it as in the coming decades? So the green movement as a, as like a unified entity doesn't exist, right? It's the legacy that exists, right? There's no one wears green anymore. Like, um, there is no like political party called the Green Movement Party or anything like that, right? As a legacy, it exists, but now it's it's a legacy of protests that exists in tandem with other protests that have happened since 2009. So this is all part of a legacy of generational struggle. Itself, the Green Movement could go back to the Iranian Revolution, which is what I really argue. And the uh, Iranian Revolution goes back to the 1963-64 uprising the 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 Fadayan attack on Siah Kal in 1971. These are all part of Iran's history 
uh, genealogy of protest. I think the most in, most hopeful thing that we should take away from not just the history of the Green Movement, but the history of the Green Movement, the 2017 and, and 2018 protests, the 2009 Aban Mah protests, and every protest that have happened since then, is that Iranians inside the country, by and large, will not accept an oppressive authoritarian government. They will not accept it. There will there will be repeated uprisings and protests. That's just that's, that that Iranian history teaches us that it's a fact of Iranian history. So we shouldn't even talk about reform, whether the government could reform itself or not. What we should talk about is that these protests will continue. Dr. Puya Ali Maqam, it has been a, a great pleasure. I thank you for the time. I thank you for the book. And I look forward to doing this again before too long. I appreciate it as well. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Khodafis. Bye-bye. Khodafis. Dr. Puya Ali Maqam, an Iranian-American historian, scholar, and author. His recent book is called Contesting the Iranian Revolution, The Green Uprisings. And Puya Ali Maqam joined us from Cambridge, Massachusetts today. This is full time for the Rook Media Series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 17, brought to you with the support of Yazdani Law Group, one of Canada's largest immigration law firms, YLGPC on Instagram. Please check out our regular editions of Rook and all things related at rookmedia.com. That's our website, rookmedia.com. Thanks to the team who make Rook Media happen, talented Anahita, Super Patty Saw, Ponta the Artist, Savvy Roham, Aray Merhtad, the fabulous Keon, Captain Reza, and Groovy Shaya. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you have not done so already. Find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. And as ever, Mizun Bashin.